It's not often that you'll hear me make direct, positive comparisons between the United States and the kingdom of God. But we live in a strange time, so here we go. I think it's notable that when I took my naturalization oath of allegiance to the United States of America in 2007, I promised this, that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of which or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And it goes on to explain more. The primacy of the Constitution in America's identity is actually really interesting to me. Here's where the comparison comes in. The citizens of both this nation and the kingdom of God aren't knit together by bloodlines or people groups, but on a commitment to a particular set of ideas. Now, the church is more significantly knit together by baptism and the power of the spirit, but a shared theology is still pretty important. In theory, although admittedly not always in practice, everyone is welcome into both if they are willing to commit to the project. When you become a citizen of the U.S., you understand up front what kind of nation it is that you belong to. This morning, we're faced with some questions about the kingdom of God. In the Gospels, we, uh, we marked last week's Gospel reading, but the Gospel parables from this week were the parables of the pearl and the treasure found in a field where the one who found them sold everything to get it. And then explaining that the kingdom of God is like yeast, leavening, flour, or like a a mustard seed that grows into a bush. It's part of a series of parables that Jesus tells in Matthew 13 to explain what the kingdom of God is like. This is the question. What is it like? What do the citizens of that kingdom live like? We'll back up a bit by looking at a king before King Jesus, and that's Solomon. He's the first of David's royal descendants. Our reading opened with high praise for him. He loved the Lord, which is displayed when it says that he offered incense and sacrifices to God. Then, in a dream, God says to him, ask what I should give you. Solomon asks for wisdom, and because he asks for that and not life or riches or the life of his enemies, God gives him all of these things in addition to wisdom. The story is familiar, but don't miss the manner in which Solomon makes his request. His response to God is basically, I am now the king. Who could possibly do this job? Who can govern this, your great people? He asks for wisdom because when faced with the task of leading God's people, Solomon recognizes his weakness, his inability. He knows that what he needs to do is to be receptive to wisdom from God, what one commentator calls a listening mind. The text says that Solomon walked in the ways of his father. This is meant as a great compliment given the high praise that the Bible gives for David. But David wasn't a perfect king. A deep dive into his life shows us more than a few missteps and mistakes. Moments of misdirected passion, moments of profound failure due to inaction. He needed to confess what he had done and what he had left undone. We can see those confessions all over the Psalms. So Solomon, son of David, is aware of at least some of the potential pitfalls that await him. Faced with such a large task, Solomon knew from the start what was needed for him to lead well was to start from his weakness, to start with dependency on God. Throughout biblical wisdom literature, much of it written by Solomon, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Reverence for God, acknowledging our need for God, is the foundation of living rightly. Because wisdom is more than knowledge, it's applied knowledge. It's the ability to discern not just how to be right, 
but how to be good. Of course, even Solomon's wisdom didn't keep him from making significant mistakes. Notably, he married women from pagan nations in order to build political power. And it turned out exactly as God had warned that it would. It allowed for idolatry to creep into the religious practices of Israel. The high places where he offered sacrifices and incense to Yahweh became places where those same things were offered to other gods. The consequences of his actions were that 10 of the 12 tribes were taken away from him and his descendants, and the kingdom was divided in the very next generation. Faustian bargains for power that we think we will use rightly tend not to work out. We can't make the ends justify the means, where we're willing to do whatever it takes to gain influence because we'll use it rightly. That kind of thinking boxes God out of the picture. Rather than listening to God's commands about how we should live, we falsely believe that we know how to get good outcomes better than God does. And so we do all kinds of less than ideal things in order to reach our supposedly righteous goal. In doing so, it's very easy to get lost. Whether it's how we build our families or our communities or our church, strict outcome-based thinking can be used and has been used to justify all kinds of less than Christian and outright unchristian practices, all in the name of Christ. So what does living out wisdom, living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, look like? So we have these parables from Jesus' reading in Matthew 13. The parables about the expensive pearl and the treasure in the field give us a picture of how unexpected and valuable the kingdom of God is when we truly encounter it. It's a shocking experience that will upend your entire life, an experience in which you sell everything you have in order to get something greater in return. I find myself challenged as I think about the ways that I want to integrate the kingdom of God into my already formed life plan. I believe that I already know what works well and what makes for a good life. I mean, every now and then we might complain, but in the end, suburban life is pretty good, right? Jesus is telling us we can't just add the kingdom to our portfolio. We must sell what we have in order to have enough to purchase it. Elsewhere, he'll get at the same point by telling the disciples that they have to lose their lives in order to gain them. The kingdom of God can't just be added to conventional wisdom. It does not allow for other allegiances. Consider for a moment the painting of the camels in our narthex as you walk out of worship. And let me share how it's doing some good work in my own life. It helps me consider the ways in which becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God is detestable and metaphorically smelly to our middle-class sensibilities. What is the white picket fence other than a declaration of our ability to have dominion and control over our property, our lives, setting ourselves up as rulers who need no God because we have property value in a good school system? There are so many ways that we can pledge our allegiance first and foremost either to ourselves or to whatever allows us to pursue what seems right in our own eyes instead of properly bending the knee to our king and his kingdom. To be honest, and this is just me, I find it helpful to listen to 1980s Reagan-era punk music whenever I do yard work as a sort of reminder of what an idol I can make of suburban comfort. There are very few prophets who can speak so directly to the idolatry of middle-class sensibilities like they do. At the same time, the assumption that the kingdom only comes in momentous actions also challenges or is challenged in Jesus' parable this morning. Because as it turns out, the kingdom of God is also about waiting, like yeast that slowly but surely leavens three measures of flour, or like a small seed that eventually grows into a shrub that feeds the birds of the air. 
Jesus speaks to the zealots in his audience to say, the kingdom that I bring does not come in an instant, at least not in its fullness or in its totality. There is a climactic event that inaugurated the kingdom. There's no doubt about the impact of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But the full implications of that moment did not manifest overnight. And the full implications continue to come to fruition and never on our timeline. So is the kingdom of God passive? Is our role in this whole thing a matter of waiting it out, let go and let God? If not, how do we engage in it? So we can return to Solomon's approach echoed in Romans 8. Solomon's posture was one of weakness and emptiness, seeking God's wisdom before relying on his own. Last week in Romans, we read about the futility that the whole creation, ourselves included, was subjected to. And we see what Paul suggests to do in response this morning. He says that it is in our weakness that the Spirit helps us pray. That God searches our hearts. He understands exactly where we are hurting, exactly where we have encountered the pain of this world and where we need to be led. The phenomenon that Paul is describing isn't a matter of calling out to God with all of our particular specific prayer requests, as good, of course, as that is. What Paul is talking about is being deep in the mire of the senselessness of evil, both our own and that of the world around us. When we are so weak and when things are so dire that we don't even know how to pray, when we sit at the crossroads of the God of infinite love and a world where sin and disorder and chaos seem to reign, at that spot is where the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in wordless groans. When you don't even know how to pray and you simply bring that pain to God, the Spirit is there taking it and bringing it to the Father. It is a beautiful, blessed assurance. God isn't distant from our pain. He comes near to it in the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so our call is to recognize our own weakness, come face to face with our own brokenness and need for God's wisdom and help, and step into the kind of prayer where our words end. We're a church of words. The Anglican tradition has beautiful words. The prayer book is one of the great treasures of English language. I'm thankful for the ways that it and the Psalms give voice to my own thoughts and feelings, sometimes saying the things that I don't understand how to say. But sometimes we have to move beyond that and bring those things which are beyond word and sit with open wounds in front of God. And the process is neither pleasant nor peaceful, at least not at first. But in our suffering and in our our participation in this work, God does remarkable things in our lives and in the world around us. Suffering, like Jesus did, is part of the process by which we are conformed into his likeness. And all of that, coming to the crossroads of the world's hurting God's love and sitting there, that is what brings us to those oft-quoted words from Romans 8, that that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. That promise isn't a promise for tranquility, it's a promise for transformation. It isn't stoicism where we have to distance ourselves from our passions and the hurts of the world. It's a call to draw near to them and find that in doing so, God is near to us. I think if you think back on your own life, when God has produced the most fruit, I'll bet the deepest work didn't happen without deep travail. But in those times, God did not and he does not leave us. Those whom he does this work with ultimately will be justified, declared to be in the right, and glorified. God has not brought you into the wilderness to leave you to die. And so, 
As Paul closes this section, he asks, who can be against us? This isn't triumphalism. This isn't manifest destiny or a rallying cry to plow forward with your plans because you have the golden ticket. This isn't carte blanche to just plow forward because God is on your side. It's an assurance that the accuser, who will say that the sins that plague you disqualify you, or that since things are difficult, you must not be following God rightly, that accuser is wrong. Leaning into these hard places is where God is at work. Paul described them earlier as birth pains, intense moments with unspeakable joy on the other side. But we have to start with our dependence. We have to start with God. We have to be willing to sell the platitudes that God wants us to have pleasant and peaceful and successful lives. Because in selling them, the thing we'll get in return is so much greater. And in the fear and chaos of a global pandemic, we'll want to cling to whatever stability we can find. But the kingdoms of this world, both ones with flags and armies, as well as the tiny ones we try and establish in our own backyards, they are passing away and they can offer no lasting peace. So what is the kingdom of God like? It's a place where the people of God, who start with their utter dependence and need for God, give up our own ideas about what will make life good, lean into the slow work of the kingdom, praying for the things that we can't even find words for, and find that through it all, God works for our good and the good of the whole world, which he loves and is even now redeeming. That in the very center of the crisis, God is not just hearing our prayers, but giving them voice when we can't. That when we feel like our weakness and brokenness disqualifies us, that he has already declared us to be beloved and justified with plans to continue a good work in us. All because of the founder of the only nation that matters, Christ Jesus, who died, and more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Amen. Amen.